Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to the third season of the Vimy Foundation's podcast, Beyond the Ridge, a series promoting Canada's contributions to the First World War and the experts who continue to uncover our past. My name is Caitlin Bailey, and I'm the executive director of the Vimy Foundation. Uh, today, we have a special guest joining us. Um, Sarah Wortman is a, re a freelance researcher, I should say, um, and a writer from St. John's, Newfoundland. Uh, Sarah researches a variety of topics, including human security, political history, and queer theory. Sarah received funding from the LGBT uh, Purge Fund to conduct research on the history of LGBT persecution during the First World War. Sarah spent time working with Veterans Affairs Canada, where she began her research on the history of uh, LGBTQ plus soldiers in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, and is now the executive director of the Newfoundland Queer Research Initiative, who have as we learned, uh, recently launched the NL Digital Queer Archive. So congratulations, Sarah, first on launching your archive. Um, super news. So uh, we're, we're really happy to hear that. And thank you for uh, joining us today. Absolutely. It is uh, definitely a labor of love with those archives. So I'm very grateful uh, to see it kind of paying off. And now it's out into the world. So, you know, we're really encouraging everyone to check it out. Absolutely. Well, it's great. You have to... You know, you spend so much time organizing a project and then you have to let it out and hope that people use it, uh, which is always, I think, the really, um, the part for me anyway, that's really stressful. <laughs> right. It's almost like really the stuff that seems harder on paper, Yeah. <laughs> like actually getting everything together is the easy part. And then now you have to kind of show it to the world and, and hope uh, people actually like it, which is, which is very scary sometimes yeah, for sure. It is very scary. Hope that they use it. Um, so I guess my first question, you know, I ask this to everyone and, and uh, we get many different answers, but my first question for you is uh, just how you started to get interested in the first world war. Um, what, what was it that really drew you to it as a topic? Yeah. So for me, really, um, the First World War was very much part of that family history narrative. Uh, growing up, we had a great uncle uh, who, who died in the war. Uh, and so, you know, I'm a Newfoundlander. So every kind of what on the mainland is Canada Day um, for us was Memorial Day. Uh, and my dad was very adamant uh, that we have our Memorial Day ceremonies in the morning uh, and then continue on to to our Canada Day stuff. Uh, and so, you know, just growing up hearing about these stories uh, really piqued my interest. Uh, and then when I was about 16, I went on a pilgrimage uh, to all of the different caribou memorials that are located in France, uh, and now one in Gallipoli, which is quite cool. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, there was no Gallipoli, though, when I was 16, unfortunately, <laughs> although that would have been quite cool, <laughs> quite a cool trip. No trip um, to Turkey for you. <laughs> no, although I would like to go. That's on my on my bucket list now is to mm -hmm. is to make it over to, to Turkey. But I, you know, I was very much interested from that moment on. Uh, and I started to kind of ask those questions. Uh, you know, where are all of the 2S LGBTQIA plus people, uh, or as I'll be kind of referring to in the in the historical context as queer. Uh, and, you know, you see some typical narratives that often repeat about the First World War. Uh, and I was just so curious because you have all of these 
you know, people of the same gender in these very homosocial spaces. Uh, and you're telling me that none of them were queer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so that's kind of where the question first started. Uh, and it has since kind of evolved from there. When I was working as a tour guide, when I, I was 18 over in France, uh, I used some of my uh, our free time that we would have for research uh, to look into this. Uh, and I really found that, you know, well, there's a lot written about other places, you know, and specifically within poetry, um, there isn't a whole lot written uh, about the Canadian context. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's how this project, you know, initially grew. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, I guess my my next question for you, you know, you're, you're researching a, a piece of the historical narrative that is um, not very well known. Um, not super well documented, at least publicly. Uh, so what, what do you think some of the challenges are when you're trying to uncover some of these, these histories? You know, what sort of records are you using? How are you drawing some of the conclusions that you've drawn uh, in, in your work that you did for the Purge Fund? Yeah, um, a lot of my work focuses on court martials. Mm. Um, so courts martial, they were essentially the military disciplinary system, uh, and they could prosecute kind of this wide range of both civil and military offenses. Uh, and so in looking at these court martial records that are held by Library and Archives Canada, I started to notice this category of gross indecency. Uh, And so it was from drawing on those records that a lot of this research came from. And you see these men at some of the most vulnerable points in their lives, uh, having their, you know, the most intimate parts of their personal life being read out in front of the entire court. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after the trial, uh, they were, you know, quite publicly outed uh, as part of, uh, you know, what the military deemed uh, important for for military discipline, mm-hmm. uh, and so, you know, it was it was it's very detailed records, um, which uh, we're I'm kind of fortunate to have in a way, but it also feels quite intimate and privileged to to be able to read that mm-hmm. uh, and to read such detailed. Um, explicit moments uh, that, uh, you know, weren't meant to be shared with anyone, uh, Mm -hmm. let alone in a court trial. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's kind of where the bulk of my records lie. I also use a lot of scrapbooks from the First World War and, uh, you know, work kind of backwards from census records. Uh, There were a few uh, people who self-identified as partners, for example, on census documents. Um, and as well, there are a few um, nursing sister couples that are are buried together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those are kind of starting points. But, you know, really the bulk of my research um, lies in, in kind of the sad part of history where uh, these men were being persecuted simply because of how they were born and who they loved. Mm-hmm. So those courts, martial records, those are public records at this point? Yes. Yes, although I will caution anyone who wants to dabble in them, uh, it's not the most user friendly, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, they were all scanned in the 60s. Uh, and, um, and so these scans are really basically what's left of it. Uh, and Canada is actually quite privileged because uh, all of the other, from what I can tell, uh, court martial transcripts uh, within the British Empire uh, burned. 
Mm -hmm. as part of the blitz in the second world war um so when i went to look uh again as i mentioned at the start i'm a newfoundlander so i was i was very curious to see if there were any newfoundland records similar to the canadian ones uh and when i went to go look uh they there actually was very few um you know, direct testimonies that that remained. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only reason we have these ones uh, is because the Canadian government at the time, the, you know, they demanded a, a scanned copy of mm -hmm. every single one of, uh, of the court martial transcripts and kept it thus in Ottawa. So uh, safe away from from the Blitz. So mm -hmm. they're, they're quite a unique piece of uh, material. But uh, yeah, they're, uh, you definitely need at least a half hour to a full afternoon depending to try and find just one article <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely well I mean and the, the blitz is not you know we don't think about that very much when we're thinking about Canadian Canadian military records but we are very very lucky in that we we do have access to almost these complete attestation files for the first world war that you now the British ones are all gone so you know it's it's really um really interesting for for all of the research that we're able to do now especially now that they're all digitized um so i'm assuming most of the courts martial trials that you're looking at pertain to men um you know for gross indecency charges things like that did you ever find any evidence of uh women being uh charged under the courts martial trials the the nurses who came under military discipline no i've yet to find a nurse um, but that being said, you know, kind of historically in Canada, um, it was more so um, specifically lesbian and queer women uh, were persecuted uh, through psychiatric facilities. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm, I am keen, and that's kind of the next phase of this research, is to look into some of the health records, mm -hmm. um, look at, you know, hospital diaries and, and things like that to see if uh, any of the, the nurses uh, were interned. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I did find is, you know, it was quite unique because it, it's almost a bit of a paradox uh, because the men uh, were being persecuted for the same thing. Uh, and yet within the nursing sister, uh, you know, within the Canadian Army Medical Corps, um, they were actually encouraging these types of relationships to foster uh, and really, you know, allowed certain nurses to choose their specific bunk mates. Uh, there's a couple of instances where uh, two women even combined their huts, their living spaces, uh, to uh, share a bed essentially, and then they made their other hut into a little sitting room for for mm -hmm. guests. Mm -hmm. um, so it was almost, you know, it was part of this kind of narrative, um, you know, that definitely still permeates where um, intimacy between uh, women tends to be kind of downplayed as just friendship mm. uh, and I can tell you I can attest to that personally that that's still mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that it still definitely is is downplayed um, and so that was that was really the big um, thing in the war was that well we can't have the nursing sisters and uh, by extension as well the the voluntary aid uh, detachment nurses uh, we can't have them you know sleeping with any of their patients or any of the male doctors so mm -hmm. they allowed these kind of relationships to to flourish mm -hmm. at least from, from what I can see again this research is very preliminary um I was mostly focusing on the the kind of legal background mm -hmm. um I'm, I'm going to need to to do some um 
refreshers into my my medical jargon a little bit before I, I endeavor into into the psychiatric kind of research. But mm-hmm. yeah. Well, it's it's really interesting. It was just kind of a question that occurred to me recently where I thought about that. I've done some work on uh, PTSD and shell shock. And one of the things that struck me about the First World War, again, is that, you know, people spend a lot of time talking about men suffering from shell shock, but women who were in the hospitals facing the same things aren't diagnosed ever as having shell shock. It's very hard to find a woman who is diagnosed as having shell shock. It's easier to find a woman who's diagnosed as being hysterical. Um, you know, the famous, the H word that covers basically everything you could think of uh, with a woman. So, you know, it kind of is the same thing where it gets, well, it could be construed the same way where it gets kind of treated through a different system because it's seen as being a different a different thing and somehow not, you know, not the same, um, which I, I think is kind of interesting. Um, so I'm I'm curious as well, you know, a lot of what you're doing here it's as you mentioned earlier you're looking into courts martial records you're you're looking at some very um graphic files you're looking at you know people who to use your words were were then outed to their colleagues um to their 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 comrades i should say uh so what what are some of the ethical implications you find in in terms of researching and particularly publishing uh some of the the stories that you've uncovered so you, it's a very delicate um, way of going about it. Uh, and, and I often find myself having to uh, weigh the pros and, and the cons. Um, and specifically, you know, um, I, I, one of the big things that I, I really want to do is highlight more so the individual behind mm-hmm. the trial and, and not the trial itself. Um, so while in the report, I provide some initial context, I definitely try my best not to go into the most graphic components of it. Um, because, you know, for me, that is really a private moment in their lives. And it was already exposed to so many people um, that I, I think we owe it to, to them not to, um, not to disclose that. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, you have to weigh the question of outing versus not outing history. And I think one of the big things that I lie back on is that we have no idea uh, how they would have felt if they lived in uh, in 2023. Mm. Uh, I wish I could uh, just phone them up or, or go into a time machine. I think this would make a lot of our work <laughs> quite uh, quite a lot easier if we could just um, interview them directly. Um, and so, you know, you have to kind of weigh that. And um, I try to make sure that I'm doing it with honor and pride of who they are. Um, and kind of, I think it's different than other kind of criminal research, because mm. it's not something that's in today's world inherently at least it shouldn't be uh, inherently shameful mm-hmm. right um and the same thing you know you get this dilemma with families who aren't as supportive but um you know i often find myself weighing you know, a, a few upset family members which i've actually yet to come across um since this report has been published mm-hmm. um often family members are very excited um and and they've heard you know the 
experience of these men kind of being passed down mm-hmm. um, in, in family narratives uh, and never getting justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, um, so I kind of have to weigh that of potential upsets, you know, uh, descendants uh, with the, the benefit that this would have for the community, the empowerment, the beauty, the incredible, incredibly empowering feeling that comes with seeing yourself represented in history, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially in an area like the first world war, where we've never, you know, seen queer Canadians uh, represented. We've never seen their identities uh, celebrated uh, and we've never seen uh, what they've experienced uh, apologized for. Mm -hmm. So, um, I draw a lot of that based on um, what the, their approach is to uh, with the Auschwitz Museum. They mm-hmm. have a really great policy on that, mm-hmm. um, of course, with the pink triangles. And, yes. and um, I, I think I, I similarly like to to take that approach. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, definitely very, um, you know, interesting just to see that. Yeah, there's there's a, you know, you're drawing on, on a policy from a, another another organization that's also had to deal with, you know, some some really difficult, difficult cases and difficult things that, again, are not necessarily um, well talked about, you know, the, 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 the pink triangle and, and um, the Holocaust remains kind of a subject that doesn't draw as much attention as, as some of the other, uh, you know, some of the other victims of the Holocaust. So it's, it's interesting just to think about that, that, you know, that's, there's a policy and a basis for how do you how do you do this? You know, how do you approach this? And one of the other, one of the things that I, I wanted to ask, and, and I, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, very specifically, but the idea of, you know, you, you are very intentional about using queer as your definition for um, the, the, the work that you've done where you are saying, okay, you know, I, I we can, suppose that this this person is likely queer so can you talk a little bit more about that and and why that that is the term you've chosen yeah absolutely so um it's the standard within history typically to go with queer um simply because it's such an excellent umbrella term Mm -hmm. uh it can compromise it it comprises i mean everything within the 2s lgbtqia plus acronym and then some Mm -hmm. um and that is incredibly important uh, when we look at history because identities change so much over time. And, and I think if we were to go back in time and, uh, you know, call up Walt Whitman, for example, mm-hmm. um, and, and if we referred to him as a gay man, he would have no idea what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the same way, we can't determine maybe he liked women as well. Maybe he would be what we now consider bisexual. Um, maybe he had questions about his own gender and, and things kind of like that. So queer is this great catch-all mm-hmm. um, in that we can still recognize it as part of our community's heritage mm-hmm. um, while also kind of balancing this evolution of, of language, um, mm-hmm. even like homosexual, um, it was mostly used in medical uh, terminology, um, really into the 70s. Um, and people who were uh, queer in the 70s often used homophile. Uh, instead, you see a lot of homophile associations across mm-hmm. Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 
you know, in a similar way, um, this is just a great way to to catch all. And um, but in that vein, as I say, language is always evolving. So who knows? Maybe in ten years, there'll be an even better term that that we can use to kind of um, encapsulate uh, these identities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the the next question. I mean, this is always the hard question with when you're when you're trying to change change narratives or introduce narratives and and the really big question is always you know what what kind of pushback comes from this because you're dealing you're dealing with something that um is certainly a bit of a hot hot button issue right now um there's everything from uh homophobia to the viewpoints people have on i guess they use it like a dirty word but revisionism (laughs) Uh, you know, all of those types of things. So what, what are you, uh, you know, and I, I don't think I, I, I don't really want to go into sort of the, the homophobic side of it, but something more around um, introducing, introducing different narratives and, and, and different perspectives. What's some of the pushback that you sometimes get uh, for the the work that you're doing, or do you get any pushback? I guess is another question. <laughs> What's been, um, the answer is yes, unfortunately. Um, we're at a very, we're in a political climate right now where you even mention the 2SLGBTQIA plus community and unfortunately you get these very vitriolic affronts, um, sadly. Um, but what's really interesting is when I first started this research, the landscape has changed so much. Like I, when I first started, I received very minimal pushback. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when I was telling people I was doing this research or, you know, tweeting about some of the findings that I came across while writing the report, it was completely accepted. Um, but there's been this kind of noticeable um, shift mm-hmm. within that. Um, but I think that the First World War um, has almost reached a bit of a mythological status sometimes in people's minds um, and as well within kind of collective histories. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certain narratives that are very, very dominant um, within that. Uh, and I think any t- challenge to these types of narrative, you get, uh, you do get a bit of pushback. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think in a way, you know, part of that is, is growing pains. Um, and part of it is a bit more, unfortunately, sinister and then rooted in um, you know, the factors that involve in mar- that are involved in marginalization. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so I think, you know, in a way, it is very, I think it's very necessary, but uh, I think the pushback is also unfortunately inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, I have noticed, I've found, which has been really interesting, more pushback talking about men. Uh, no, sorry, opposite. Um, less pushback talking about men uh, compared to pushback talking about uh, women and nursing sisters. Um, oh, and again, I think I think it I think it ties into this misogynistic idea that um, you know women in this era did not have a sexuality, did not have romantic relationships outside of men. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that has kind of persisted. And um, yeah, it, it's been quite interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also grateful that we're at a point where we can finally challenge this uh, and that, you know, there's some incredibly um, 
determined, I think is the best word, activists in Canada who are are really kind of pushing for this recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's been a hundred years of you know, a hundred odd years of not of not acknowledging this. Um, and uh, you know, everything that has transgressed with the, the number two construction, uh, yeah, with the number two construction battalion. Uh, it's quite fabulous to to see, um, you know, finally the both the bravery of these men, but also the racism and hardship that they endured is is coming to the surface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess that that brings me just to my closing question, and you've you've mentioned this already, but as you say, many of these stories are over a hundred years old, um, and I think that there are people who would argue that they just should be left. You know, they should should be left to their their, their privacy, I guess, or, you know, why are we making such a fuss? Um, why make a fuss over, over, uh, you know, this, this group of people? Um, so why is it important to you to continue to, to uncover these and, and share these stories? I think the fact that we haven't heard it in a hundred years says a lot about the lack of recognition um, mm-hmm. that these communities have gotten. Um, within kind of traditional uh, First World War commemorations. Uh, And that, you know, necessitates uh, further acknowledgement and the fact that, you know, it's 100 years too late (laughs) Mm -hmm. to acknowledge these people um, and to recognize the hardship that these men uh, endured and that these women's relationships were covered up. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on one hand, I think that that is incredibly important, um, but yet at the same time, I think it challenges, uh, as I mentioned, how this the political landscape has changed so much in Canada towards the, the 2S LGBTQIA plus community. And we're seeing these kind of rhetorics resurfacing that, uh, you know, queerness and queer identity is a choice almost, um, or something that is like taught in in the education system simply because there's uh, inclusive education and there's, you know, histories being shared like the ones I'm sharing today. Uh, And so it's, I think more important now than ever to recognize uh, this history and say, well, you know, here are uh, 19 men who did not learn about this in school, who did not grow up with inclusive education. They grew up in a very heteronormative world where their existence was quite literally criminal. And yet, despite this, despite all of the persecution, they stayed true to their identity and they were queer nonetheless. Uh, and I think that's a very powerful evidence against against this narrative. And um, it empowers me to, to share these stories uh, and continue to do so. Well, thank you, Sarah. Um, and just a reminder for everyone that the uh, NL Digital Queer Archive is now live and accessible uh, to anyone with a computer. So congratulations on that. Um, and we're, we're wishing you all the all the success possible with uh, making sure that these these important doc, uh, documents are available for people to to look at and learn from. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the third season of Beyond the Ridge. Uh, stay tuned as we have many more topics that we're going to be covering, including uh, colonialism, uh, the practice of public history uh, in military history, 
and identification of uh, First World War remains. Uh, the Vimy Foundation works to preserve and promote Canada's ongoing legacy of leadership through its educational programs to build a future informed, we hope, by the past. Thank you again, Sarah.